It's Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the Dodo Bird is back, baby. Or at least lots of investors are betting on its return. But why is de-extincting animals the hot new thing? And what does it mean for the future of conservation? Plus, Abraham Lincoln, bartender. Another look at his motley early career and earliest speeches that still resonate today. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Colossal Biosciences is back in the headlines this week with a reaffirmed promise to bring the dodo bird back from extinction. This is the biotech company I've mentioned a number of times who plans to ultimately de-extinct the woolly mammoth, but who is starting relatively smaller with the thylacine, aka the Tasmanian tiger. And they have previously mentioned that the dodo bird would be included in their plans, but on Tuesday they announced that they had received $150 million in a Series B funding round and that the dodo bird is officially go for hatch. The dodo was a three-foot-tall flightless bird with a huge beak that went extinct in 1662, about a century and a half after European colonists first arrived in the dodo's native home of Mauritius and brought all of their other species, cats, dogs, rats, with them, driving the very hungry dodo into extinction. Colossal Biosciences already has the genome of the dodo thanks to Beth Shapiro, a specialist in ancient DNA at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and now lead paleogeneticist at Colossal. Shapiro and her team recovered the DNA from a 500-year-old specimen from a museum in Denmark. But when we talk about de-extinction, it doesn't mean they're bringing back real dodos exactly as they were. Quoting Wired, The plan is actually to edit the genomes of living relatives of extinct creatures and so create animals that occupy similar ecological niches as their distant cousins. Not mammoths or dodos exactly, but what Colossal calls functional mammoths or dodos. End quote. For the dodo bird, they'll be modifying the genes of the Nicobar pigeon, its closest living relative, and it'll go step by step ever closer to a dodo bird until the scientists deem it functionally close enough to rewild it, or something. Rewilding is the plan for the thylacines and the woolly mammoths, the mammoths they hope to release into the rapidly warming tundra of Siberia and North America, where they might once again work as ecosystem engineers and turn the tundra back into grassland. As far as the thylacine, they too would be rewilded in the hopes of improving the ecosystem and biodiversity of Australia's bush, a mission so dear to the hearts of the Hemsworth brothers that the actors have invested in this particular project of Colossals. While there are ample questions about the efficacy of those plans, or whether these functional proxies of extinct species could potentially do more harm than good, or require things that we can't predict yet, more questions remain for the dodo. Colossal hasn't announced specific rewilding plans for the hypothetical de-extinct dodo, quoting MIT Technology Review, 
The big agricultural industry in Mauritius is sugarcane farming, and there are plenty of rats and other non-native predators around. It would not really be a dodo, it would be a new species, but it still needs an environment, says Jennifer Lee Pukden, a gene sequencing specialist at Stanford University whose parents were born on the island. What would that mean ethically if one is not available? End quote. And speaking of ethics, is this the way that we should be helping our ecosystems? By genetically altering animals to fit environments that we humans have destroyed? Wired suggests initiatives like these could alter how we think about conservation more generally, and alter the flow of money to these more exciting projects instead of other, more reliable, but maybe less flashy conservation practices. To me, it sounds a lot like the philanthropy argument, letting the wealthy pick and choose what causes they care about instead of being taxed fairly so the money can be spread more equitably. As Wired put it, quote, a few charismatic species are saved while the rest of nature burns, end quote. De-extinction programs don't address why we're in the midst of a mass extinction, but rather, quote, dangle a technological panacea for the problem, end quote. But setting the ethics aside for just a moment, there are also questions about how to de-extinct the dodo. Because, as competitors in the market Revive and Restore have recently learned, de-extincting birds is actually quite a bit more difficult than de-extincting mammals. Quoting further from the MIT Tech Review, The problem is that while it's easy to gene-edit bird cells in the lab, it's hard to turn carefully edited cells back into a bird. For mammals, such as cattle or elephants, the answer is easy, cloning. But cloning doesn't work with a bird egg. It's a huge cell, and its nucleus is an opaque yolk. You would have to take it out and implant another nucleus, and it's impossible to do, says Mike McGrew, an avian biologist at the Roslyn Institute in Edinburgh who is a paid advisor to Colossal. McGrew believes the likely solution is to inject genetically edited cells into the gonads of a developing pigeon chick. That way, some of those cells will end up forming the new bird's egg or sperm. If that bird then reproduces, its offspring will be related to the donor cells and will include any DNA changes. This technology already works, McGrew says, but so far only in chickens. End quote. They've tried with other birds to no success just yet. So mammals are a bit more straightforward, and the thylacine has also been picked as the first de-extinction project because, since they went extinct so recently, during the early 20th century versus 400 or 10,000 years ago, there's ample well-preserved DNA, and their gestation period is only about two weeks, versus 22 months for the woolly mammoth. While Colossal Biosciences co-founder and CEO Ben Lamb has said we might have a woolly mammoth by 2029, it would be another 10 to 12 years to reach sexual maturity, and then almost two years after that to birth another mammoth. So we're talking a pretty long timescale there. Depending how it all shakes out with that egg conundrum, the dodo might end up beating the mammoth to re-existence. But because of this long timescale, the enormous amount of money that Colossal has raised thus far might actually not go that far. Including that Series B funding, they're now up to $225 million in total funding, which is quite a lot when you compare it to other conservation efforts. For example, Wired points out the Sierra Club raised about $100 million in donations in 2021. 
But since we're talking about something that has such a long lead time for the big moonshot to come to fruition, it's gonna keep needing big influxes of cash. And that gets us to why even do this? Why de-extinct animals like the woolly mammoth and the dodo? Well, you know, first, because it's a cool idea. And it doesn't seem quite as dangerous as Jurassic Park. As for the mammoth and the thylacine, at least, there's also the potential for them to help restore ecosystems. There's that whole conservation angle. But overall, it feels a bit like justifying space exploration. At the end of the day, it's just freaking cool. But yes, there are lots of ways space exploration has contributed to breakthroughs here on Earth as well. And Colossal Biosciences is aware that the research they're doing, the breakthroughs they're bound to have, could make huge headway in fields like gene editing and sequencing, leading to all kinds of developments in things like IVF and artificial wombs and so much more. So both to sort of give back and to help out with their bottom line, Colossal Biosciences has been and plans to continue launching a whole bunch of other startups based on their research. For example, quoting Wired, in September 2022, Colossal spun out its first startup, FormBio, which launched with a $30 million Series A funding round. FormBio is developing a software platform designed to help scientists manage large and complicated data sets that could be useful for drug discovery, gene therapy, and academic research, end quote. They have a whole team dedicated to product development that meets twice a month with the company's scientists to discuss what breakthroughs can be turned into new companies. And this is why a lot of investors have bought in, and even what convinced some of the scientists to work with them. Professor Shapiro, the one who cracked the dodo genome, told the MIT Tech Review, quote, At first, I was really like, I don't know about this technology, but gradually, I've come to think that this is the future. We need to develop these tools and additional approaches to be able to protect species today from becoming extinct. And if we're going to excite people enough to do that, we're going to have to throw something big out there. And everybody's heard of the dodo. End quote. And CEO Lamb has admitted that to an extent, too, saying how the dodo is basically the symbol of man-made extinction. The woolly mammoth certainly is a symbol of extinction as well. So perhaps these two flagship projects are just the PR boost that the company needs to make smaller projects, like that of the thylacine or all the myriad spin-out startups, succeed. As Wired put it, quote, It might just be that the least moonshotty parts of Colossal's work are the bits that end up having the biggest impact. End quote. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Around this time last year, right as President's Day was rolling around, I did an episode all about President Lincoln's lesser-known pursuits. America's most literary president, it may not have come as a huge shock that he wrote his own poetry, some of which has been preserved. The Lincoln Memorial even sells a book of his poetry in the gift shop, or at least they did about 20 years ago. More surprising from last year's episode might have been the revelation that President Lincoln is in the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. 
Inducted in 1992, the Hall of Fame refers to Lincoln as the wrestling champion of his county. That's a bit of a misnomer. Wrestling championships didn't exist so formally in the 1830s, but Lincoln was very much known as one of the best in his county, thanks in part to his remarkable height. Lincoln is, incredibly, not the only U.S. president in the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. Washington, Taft, and Teddy Roosevelt are all in it as well. But he is the only U.S. president with a patent, which he received in 1849 for a device for freeing ships that had run aground in shallow water. And something I learned only this morning, he is also the only U.S. president that was a licensed bartender. Like so many other facts about him, this one is a bit embellished and comes from just a brief period in his life, though that's part of what makes him such a remarkable renaissance man. In part due to his many hardships growing up, he led an incredibly diverse life and picked up a lot of different skills and trades before ending up in the White House. When he was 22, he moved to New Salem, Illinois, where he remained for almost six years, working as a store clerk, serving in a militia, and running for office, unsuccessfully. Quoting the Chicagoist, In January 1833, he partnered with his friend from his militia days, William F. Berry, to purchase a small store, which they named Berry and Lincoln. Stores could sell alcohol in quantities greater than a pint for off-premises consumption, but it was illegal to sell single drinks to consume at the store without a license. In March 1833, Barry and Lincoln were issued a tavern or liquor license, which cost them $7 and was taken out in Barry's name. Stores that sold liquor to consume on the premises were called groceries, end quote. So technically, he just had a liquor license. He wasn't a licensed bartender. He certainly would have served up plenty of drinks, though. The records show that the store had all manner of brandy, gin, rum, and whiskey available, and especially Applejack. That is actually how I stumbled on this fun fact about Lincoln today. A virtual book club I'm attending recommended pairing the event with a Jack Rose, the most famous Applejack cocktail. Applejack is a kind of fruit brandy that was especially popular during colonial times. It fell out of popularity in the late 19th century, but has had a bit of a revival among certain craft distilleries in recent years. And the Jack Rose is made with Applejack, grenadine, lemon or lime juice, and a fruit garnish, like a raspberry, strawberry, or apple. Did it also inspire the name of the couple from Titanic? I don't know, but I like to believe it did. In any case, Lincoln abandoned the grocery pretty quickly. His partner was sampling a bit too much of the Applejack, and they fell into debt. Lincoln sold his share in the store, choosing instead to become the postmaster of New Salem, a job he would keep for a solid three years and which makes him the only U.S. president to have served as a postmaster. Technically, Harry Truman did also hold the title, but he gave the position to an assistant. But yeah, Lincoln was a bartender, a postmaster, a patent holder, a wrestler, a poet, a lawyer, a soldier, an inventor. Like I said, dude did a lot before becoming president. And he wasn't always proud of all of it. Records show he denied working in a grocery, at least in some of his earlier debates with Stephen Douglas. Whether this negates the records that some historians have found indicates that he was embarrassed by his class or circumstances, or something else, I don't know. 
Personally, I think it's part of what made him such a great leader. The fact that he had done so many different things and had to work so hard to get where he was, meeting all manner of people along the way. Those experiences left him with an early insight. One of his most famous speeches is the one about a house divided against itself being unable to stand, which he gave in 1858 after accepting the Illinois Republicans' nomination for Senate. But 20 years before that, when he was just 28, he gave his first major speech to the Young Men's Lyceum of Springfield. In the speech, he referenced a recent event in which a black man named Francis McIntosh was burned alive by a lynch mob. And the judge in the case told people not to blame the mob, but rather the abolitionists who had stirred the pot. He named one of the abolitionists, a white man named Elijah Lovejoy, who was then hunted down by the mob and murdered as well. So in Lincoln's speech shortly after these murders, he warned against mob rule, predicted the threat of tyrants, and most ominously cautioned what would happen were the mob and the tyrant to unite as one. Lincoln gave this speech more than two decades before the outbreak of the Civil War, and yet not only does it read as if it was written during the war, but I at least still feel the reverberations of it today, especially in these recent years. So here is an excerpt from the speech, quote, That our government should have been maintained in its original form from its establishment until now is not much to be wondered at. It had many props to support it through that period, which are now decayed and crumbled away. Through that period, it was felt by all to be an undecided experiment. Now it's understood to be a successful one. If they succeeded, they were to be immortalized. Their names were to be transferred to counties and cities and rivers and mountains and to be revered and sung and toasted through all time. If they failed, they were to be called knaves and fools and fanatics for a fleeting hour, then sink and be forgotten. They succeeded. The experiment is successful, and thousands have won their deathless names in making it so. But the game is caught, and I believe it is true that with the catching end the pleasures of the chase. This field of glory is harvested, and the crop is already appropriated. But new reapers will arise, and they too will seek a field. It is to deny what the history of the world tells us is true, to suppose that men of ambition and talents will not continue to spring up amongst us, and when they do, they will as naturally seek the gratification of their ruling passion as others have so done before them. The question then is, can that gratification be found in supporting and maintaining an edifice that has been erected by others? Most certainly it cannot. Many great and good men sufficiently qualified for any task they should undertake may ever be found, whose ambition would inspire to nothing beyond a seat in Congress, a gubernatorial or a presidential chair. But such belong not to the family of the lion or the tribe of the eagle. What, think you these places should satisfy an Alexander, a Caesar, or a Napoleon? Never. Towering genius disdains a beaten path. It seeks regions hitherto unexplored. It sees no distinction in adding story to story upon the monuments of fame erected to the memory of others. It denies that this is glory enough to serve under any chief. It scorns to tread in the footsteps of any predecessor, however illustrious. It thirsts and burns for distinction, and if possible, it will have it, whether at the expense of emancipating slaves or enslaving freemen. 
Is it unreasonable then to expect that some man possessed of the loftiest genius coupled with ambition sufficient to push it to its utmost stretch will at some time spring up among us? And when such a one does, it will require the people to be united with each other, attached to the government and laws and generally intelligent to successfully frustrate his designs. End quote. Well, that is going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.